Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about a UN peacekeeping force skirmishing with a Congo border guard, a tense situation developing in Kosovo, and the expansion of the BRICS alliance. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. And we have quite the eventful week, which is great for me, because I cover these things week by week. So we'll start with Biden in COVID isolation. Uh, apparently he's caught COVID twice, which probably says a lot about the vaccines, considering I know for a fact that this man has been vaccinated. Uh, but I guess that's, that must be old news by now, the issue with the vaccines, at least until uh, all those side effects become much more public. I swear the list just grows by like the week. Regardless... That'll probably pop up sooner or later, but Biden's in COVID isolation. Ironically enough, he catches COVID right after, um, should I even say an embarrassing trip to the Middle East? I I feel like that's a bit, you know, too scandalizing than what it is. It's really just, he went to the Middle East. He's basically asked, hey, can you produce more oil? And they, uh, they said no, every single one of them. And then they met with Russia for the OPEC plus to determine the oil production for the their group and they ultimately determined that they weren't going to produce any more oil it's nothing really on Biden's part as much as uh, many particularly on the right will criticize him for that that's just not in his power to do to change the production schedules or the production volumes of other countries because some of the countries like uh, Azerbaijan when the EU's uh, commission leader went to Azerbaijan to get more gas, Azerbaijan's already at capacity. So it's not like they could go higher if they wanted to. And then you have countries like Arabia, who you already know has spare capacity, but they're making a killing because of the high gas prices. So why would they? I mean, the Russians are selling their their oil and gas at a discount. And I already told you about how the Arabians are buying Russian gas to power their homes because it's it's hot in arabia they they have lots of air conditioners running so they they have russian gas powering their homes and then they sell the rest of their gas at the super high market prices but they get the russian gas at a discount because the russians are selling their gas at discount so that they've gained a net profit from doing this and they have no incentive to produce more like there's nothing biden could have done about that now, what Biden can do is expand American production. That's where we should be looking. Right? And that is a criticism that the same people who mock him for not being able to accomplish that anything on that trip will say we could be producing oil here at home. But that's really the only thing in his power to do. And you know, I guess him going to the Middle East in general just speaks to how far people of the green agenda are willing to go to not produce energy at home. But I'll digress. I won't blame him too much, even though I 
don't like him. I'll just keep it real with you. But anyway, we have a UK pharmaceutical company, uh, VIIV Healthcare. I don't know if that's supposed to be an acronym or any something, but I'll just call it what it is. VIIV Healthcare. The two V's are capital. They're doing something interesting. They're going to allow certain manufacturers in primarily third world countries to produce generic versions of their HIV prevention drug. And this is a specifically a version of the drug that they can inject. And it's called Cabogetavir. Uh, Cabogetravir. There we go. And this is shown to provide around two months of protection against the virus. And this is HIV, so this is pretty huge. Especially considering that the third world has the biggest issues with HIV and AIDS in general. So this is pretty game-changing for them. Or at least those of them who are able to get their hands on this this drug. Especially the generic version, because the generics are cheaper. So this is pretty good news. Very good news. Uh, we also have the UK making a registry for property owned by foreign countries. And though this was primarily done uh, out of hostility towards China and you know, you know me, I don't really agree with these anti-China sentiment. Not because I like what the Chinese do in their, in their country, but it's like, what they do in China is none of my business, really. And what China does in other people's countries isn't my business either. What they do in my country is my business. So while I may disagree with the sentiment here, I do agree with the policy. Uh, it's not like they're restricting the land, uh, although in some cases that might be necessary but i agree with the concept is a matter of national sovereignty I, if foreign governments are purchasing land in your country you should probably be paying attention to that and i believe something similar is probably going to be put into a place in america just uh judging by florida who's uh g the governor there run the census has promised to do similar things although i'm pretty sure that was independently of this so that just makes it all the more likely we'll see this especially with uh, the Trump Ron DeSantis ticket that's probably on its way for the next election. Although, I would like to see something uh, resolved with 2020, but that's for another day. So, yeah, a pretty good policy, pretty sound policy here. The UK making, in the midst of their political chaos, they're making some pretty sound geostrategic moves, ironically enough. Uh, and then we have Portugal suffering a major drought. And that that's a story for major agricultural countries there's a pretty big drought going on and i guess that's just contributing to the problem which is ukrainian grain uh not being able to make it to market although grain ships are now free to leave ukraine the russians have decided they're going to allow this to happen and they're going to be checked at turkey remember so turkey continues to become more important by the day these ships are going to leave ukraine the the, the ukrainians had to demine they had to clear out all the mines around their ports that they had left Primarily around Odessa. I have a feeling that's going to backfire on them horribly. But for the time being, now they can ship out their backed up grain storage. And they're going to, it's going to stop in Turkey to be checked. Make sure there's no weapons on it. And then it's going to make its way out to the wider world. So we'll see if this can alleviate the problem fast enough. We will see. But it's definitely better news than what we've been getting for the past couple weeks. And then we have the U.S. State Department, which has issued an order for non-essential government staff working in Mali to leave. They, they want them to leave the country over fears of jihadist advances in the country. And I know the French had to basically pull out a couple months ago 
So perhaps this is sort of the, the fallout from that withdrawal. May, may we see a, a jihadist state in Mali? Like, take over the country in its entirety? Or at the very least, the official government? Who knows? It's, it's looking like a possibility, but we'll just have to wait and see on that one. We have a Russian energy company, Gazprom, uh, halting the flow of gas to Latvia, which is the country in the middle. If you look at a map of Europe, you'll find those. You'll find Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Latvia is the one right above Lithuania. So Russia's gas company, Gazprom, is cutting off gas to Latvia over contract violations. At least that's what they say. Is there a political motive to this? Maybe. I mean, they got sanctioned by all these countries, so I wouldn't be surprised if there was a political motive. But at the for now, we'll just run with contract violations. We have Russian President Vladimir Putin speaking on his military's upcoming acquisition of Zircon hypersonic missiles. And from what I've seen of hypersonic missiles, the ones that were deployed in Ukraine, these things are incredibly powerful for something that doesn't even have like a large uh, explosive yield. It's just the sh- pure kinetic force of the impact and it, it it's just devastating. I mean, there's there's pictures of this Ukrainian port and this dockyard. And there's the picture before and then there's the picture after it gets hit by the hypersonic and when you see the comparison you're just like, "Wow. There used to be water there." And it's like, "What did the water do?" But these things are powerful. So, and though those are the ones Russia already had, so now they're Putin's talking about the acquisition of their new hypersonic missile, which is probably either ha- going to have greater range. Uh, I don't know how you increase the range when you can already cover the world, uh, but probably higher speeds and a bigger impact. So, we'll, we'll see what comes from that. Maybe they'll test it out on the Ukrainians towards the later stages of this war, if they can get it in production fast enough. Although the Russians seem to be good at producing artillery shells. And so we'll we'll see if what they do. We'll see what they do. Uh, but while we're still talking about the war in Ukraine, Ukraine is preparing for a major offensive in Kherson region. Now that's the one between... Uh, that's the one between Crimea and the Zaporozhye region. So if you look at a map of Europe and you see where... Ukraine is, you have Crimea on the bottom, the area where the river bends, like the, you see how it comes down and then it curves and goes diagonally into the sea, that area right there is the region we're talking about here, so that's where Ukraine is planning for their major offensive, they've been talking about this for a while, and consequentially, it should also be noted that because they've been talking about it for so long, the Russians undoubtedly know about it as well. And this is probably going to be Ukraine's last stand. It's probably going to be their last stand. They're losing ground in the Donbass, and every day it seems like they're slipping faster and faster. Like, the gains that the Russians are making now are the type of gains at a speed we haven't seen since the start of the war. And so Ukraine has to do something. Otherwise, they're just going to collapse and die. What exactly they're going to do, I couldn't tell you. I think they're going to lose. But it seems like they're staking uh, they're, they're staking their claim in, in Kherson. They're betting the family farm on Kherson 
and this counteroffensive. And maybe they might deny the Russians their land bridge, or maybe they'll just disrupt the referendum the Russians are planning there. I know that Duran has been talking about the referendum and how this might just be an attempt to disrupt that, to cast doubt on the legitimacy of it. Although, legitimacy would be cast doubt upon by literally everyone in Europe and the United States anyway, out of ideological hostility to Russia. So... Not entirely sure. Maybe they maybe they want to take it and deny Russia the land bridge to Crimea. At the very least, you know, secure their half of the country if you split it along the river. At the very least, they can secure that much of their country and secure the river delta of the Dnieper. I'm not entirely convinced they're going to succeed, though. If anything, they might just exhaust their forces. And from what I know, they're using the, the good forces that they've been pulling away from the front lines uh, as a reserve, so if they didn't lose all their good troops, they're going to be deploying them into this counteroffensive. And if the way that war in the Donbass has gone, which is the farthest east part of Ukraine, I think what's going to happen is they're going to go in, they're going to get hammered, absolutely hammered by Russian artillery, and wherever they do make a good breakthrough, they're just going to get hammered by Russian rockets and air, and Russia's air power now. The deeper they go, the more resistance they will get, and then they'll just exhaust themselves for minimal gains, and it'll be a, a scene out of World War One, except the Russians have tanks and the Ukrainians won't. And the Russians will counterattack. They'll do a counteroffensive on the counteroffensive, and that might just rout the entire Ukrainian army, because at that point they will have deployed their reserve. But we'll see. We'll definitely have to see. Uh, I've been wrong about what the exact plans of the Russians before, which is why at this point I've just resigned myself to observing them. But I'm not, I'm not sure if the Ukrainians are going to be able to pull this one off. Like they might, they seriously might. There's a possibility. I mean, they if they've been talking about it for this long, then hopefully on, in their part they've been planning for it just as long. So they, they've crossed their T's and dotted their I's, and they might get some serious gains here. They might cut off the Russian army in a couple of places if they're good, and if they really, really execute this plan, and if the plan is good, because that, that's another thing. You want a good plan, maybe not the perfect plan, but a good plan, and you want really, really good execution, they might be able to do some serious damage to the Russians. I don't know if that's going to turn the tide of the war for them definitively, even if, even if they succeed in the offensive. I have a feeling they will still exhaust themselves and open themselves up to Russian counterattack. And then they'll lose all their gains. So, while I am not exactly optimistic for this, this will be perhaps the make-or-break moment of this war for the Ukrainians. Because if you lose your reserves and the Russians are fighting you and winning in a war of attrition, well, now you've lost. Because now every hole the Russians punch in your line you don't have anyone to replace. So, very precarious situation for Ukraine, and we will see what comes of this offensive that they are planning on, and they have been planning on for a while now. In other news, we have Algeria, now seeking to join the BRICS. And part of their reasoning for this is to avoid bipolar conflicts, and that's not conflicts that are insane, although I would call them insane, but it's more like, one power here and another power there in conflict between them. They don't want to get caught up between two superpowers fighting it out. 
So, aka, they're talking about Cold War 2.0. They're, they're joining this to avoid Cold War 2.0, specifically. But Russia's a part of the BRICS. So, so much for isolating Russia. And I, we'll, we'll actually talk more about this later on in the episode, uh, when we get to the BRICS. Uh, back here in the United States, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is planning on visiting Taiwan. And as of now, it is confirmed that she's still going. Although there's been a lot of hubbub about this, namely because the Chinese have increased the threats about why she shouldn't go. And one of those threats included them threatening to shoot down the plane she's on. So we could real life see uh, uh, what will we call it? A Gulf of Tonkin moment? A USS Maine moment? A Lusitania moment? We might actually see something like that happen in the next few days if the Chinese follow through on the threat. Now, will they? I don't know. Because the Chinese don't exactly want to go to war with America as much as they would like to go to war with Taiwan to end that question once and for all. I mean... To be fair, to be fair, because you know, you know me, I, I'm not one for these sorts of conflicts. I don't see why we have to defend Taiwan. But this is exactly the sort of thing that the Chinese want to take Taiwan to avoid. This is exactly the type of thing that they try to avoid when they want to take Taiwan. Other countries involving themselves in Taiwan. And now you have the Speaker of the House, which is technically third in line for the presidency. Going to this, well, we would call it a country, the Chinese won't. And for what exactly? That much hasn't been specified. Uh, And by that, I mean, no one knows why she's chosen to do this. But she's chosen to do this. And now it causes trouble for the Chinese. You're giving legitimacy to this province that the Chinese consider a rogue province. (laughs) And you create unnecessary tensions between the U.S. and China. But now that Nancy's decided to do it, and I guess this was even before this was, it was confirmed that she's still going at this point in the game. Uh, it's Monday today. So even before that, when the Chinese issued the threats saying, we're going to shoot down that plane if you come here, there was uh, immediately you had the standard, well, we can't back down now because if we back down, then we're giving a victory to China. And it's th- that sort of thing that makes me not want to be involved in any sort of Cold War at all. Because people lose their minds over what should be common sense behaviors, but once you get once you get into that competitive Cold War mindset, suddenly common sense actions are taken off the table because it, it looks or it feels like a concession to the country you're supposed to be fighting it out with for influence, global influence. Even though, honestly, we'd probably gain respect for not going (laughs) particularly among the countries in the region who don't want this to blow up into a war but we're stuck we're stuck because of pride and prestige so now nancy's still going and we're gonna find out really quickly if we're just gonna be at war with china now we're gonna find out real quick because the chinese don't like to lose face and even if they don't shoot down the plane, well, they're definitely going to look at Taiwan as an even bigger security threat than it, they already consider it to be. 
we might have accelerated the <laughs> the capture of Taiwan with this action. Even if the Chinese don't shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane, I have a feeling we may have accelerated the timetables for them taking this island by force. So that this can't happen again. But we'll, we will see very shortly what happens of this. I don't know if we're going to go to war. Uh, I really can't tell you. I didn't think the Russians were going to go to war in February of this year, but they did. So we'll just have to wait and see. In other news, Nicaragua is set to ban our new ambassador, Hugo Rodriguez, from entering the country. Why? Because Rodriguez said that he would support, quote, the use of all economic and political tools to change the political direction of Nicaragua, end quote. So naturally, the Nicaraguans had opinions about this and decided they were quite content with their current political trajectory and banned him from entering the country. So that's just a funny little story. But that's all I have for the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start by talking about what happened with a UN peacekeeping force in Congo. Because, and this was a, a really interesting story. We had a UN peacekeeping force kill two Congo border guards in the Kasindi region of the country. Oh, wait, no, that's not a region, that's a city. My mistake, that's the city they were in. They killed two Congo border guards while they were leaving Uganda. So they were crossing the border, they killed two of these border guards, and 15 more people were wounded because there was a shootout. Like, when they got there, they were denied entry into the country, and there was a shootout that resulted in two dead and 15 wounded. And reportedly, the customs officers, the, the, the Congo customs officers, who were there, they were on orders not to allow the UN troops to pass. And they had been given these orders in advance before this situation went down. So when the UN troops get there, they follow their orders, which is not to allow the UN troops to pass. But upon reaching the border, uh, the border crossing, the peacekeepers... Well, which is what they're supposed to be, they opened fire. And this has caused an, a serious uptick in tensions between the locals who've begun calling into question peace, the peacekeeping force in general, uh, which, to be fair, is a natural response. I was shocked. I, didn't, I almost didn't believe it. I mean, this... It, I... I it's just wow. It's just wow. Like this is this is not what you expect to find on a Wednesday afternoon. But their response of questioning these peacekeeping forces is fair. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's a fair one. I mean, feeling like you've been disrespected in your own country. And honestly, this is a peacekeeping force. They're supposed to keep the peace. That's what they're there for. So, what does it say about a peacekeeping force if the people who are supposed to keep the peace are the ones making the violence? And they kill two of your people and wound others. Wound others. I mean, if we take a step back and look at this, the bare bones of this situation, from the Congolese perspective, the incident looks even worse. 
it looks even worse. Because what it looks like then is foreign troops shooting their way through your border guard to effectively break and enter into your country. There's no repercussions. There's no consequences and no accountability, at least no accountability that can be brought on these invaders, not by your own government. The Congolese government can't do much about them, unless they would do a general mobilization and send the entire army after them. But that that's what this situation is. Uh, That's a really bad. And I'm pretty sure that if you're in Congo, you're view on this situation is probably even worse than I've projected it, Uh, even worse on the inside than I can convey in words, but it's just uh, shocking, to say the least. Again, this is not what you expect when you're reading the news to see what's going on around the world, to see a a UN peacekeeping force get into a shootout with the local troops and border guards when they were denied access into another country. were they retreating? Were they, was it urgent? Were they, did they have people wounded and they needed immediate medical care and they didn't need, they just didn't need to stop because they didn't, well, they just didn't want to stop because they didn't have the available treatment necessary on hand and they needed to get to a hospital? I, I couldn't tell you. But nonetheless, this is wild to see. It's crazy. But, um, yeah, I mean, It'll be interesting to see how other countries respond. Uh, like again, I, I didn't, I almost didn't believe it. But it'll be interesting to see how other countries respond. It'll see be interesting to see what Congo does moving forward. Will they just straight up ban UN forces? Will they bring this up at the UN the next time there's a meeting? And what will happen then? What will other countries think? What will they do? Will they, too, give orders not to let UN troops enter their countries like Congo did? Effectively killing off the UN peacekeeping force as an effective unit? Because if you if there's a crisis in, say, a landlocked country, but all the countries around it don't allow your troops to pass, well, congratulations, your peacekeeping force is meaningless now. Because <laughs> it, it can't get to the places where it would te- it's supposed to be needed the most. Because of your own actions. Are we seeing a radical change in the perception of the UN peacekeeping force? Is this just the catalyst? Or will this be a one-off incident and things get better from here? We'll have to wait and see. But uh, again, I'll, I'll say it one more time before we move on. This is not what, what I was expecting to see looking through the news for this week. I thought I was going to see some more stuff about Ukraine and Russia. I thought I was going to see more stuff about the gas situation in Europe, which continues to get worse by the second, but I'm I'm not going to go too much into that for this episode. I'll, I'll spare you, if only for one episode, because I, I have a strong feeling I'll be right back to talking to it about it next episode, if only because, if only because it keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse, and then I have to talk about it. But winter is coming. We'll see. But I'll spare you from that. I, th- those are the things I was expecting to read about. I was expecting to read about Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan and how China was going to shoot her down out the sky. Uh, uh, interesting tidbit about that is that the Pentagon talked about sending a fighter jet escort to a- to make sure that she 
landed on Taiwan safely. Now, what exactly they would have done if the Chinese were really, really serious about that? What exactly that fighter escort would have done? I'm not entirely sure. And it's not that it's not that I doubt the power of the U.S. military. It's just that this is a really, really bad place to pick a fight. But like, you were picking a fight with China right next to China, where China can bring all of its assets to bear, but we cannot. That's the definition of an unfair fight, if there ever was one. This is just really bad ground to pick a fight, even if you're on the side of having that fight with China. It's just a really bad place for it. So what exactly... You know what? I'll just, <laughs> I'll just leave it to reality, because by the time I get done going over all the options and all the ways this could end... We'll have, find, we'll have found out, probably by the middle of this week, whether or not any of my, those speculations were worth the while. But those are things I was expecting to read about. I was not expecting to read about UN troops killing people in Congo. That just wasn't even on the radar. But here we are. And I guess that's the, the theme of this year. The, the unthinkable becomes all you can think about. So... Looks like uh, old Taiwan might uh, might want to get their get their stuff in order, because the unthinkable is probably going to happen to them too, especially with what's going on with Nancy Pelosi visiting. But yeah, it's crazy. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop uh, I'm gonna stop reminiscing and de- deliberating on what happened in Congo, and we'll just have to watch what happens from it, because we also have the Balkans to talk about. Specifically, we have Kosovo, we have Serbs in Kosovo. Kosovo used to be a part of Serbia. Now, if you're Serbian, Kosovo is still a part of Serbia. But, you know, functionally, they're a separate country. They have their own government, they have their own borders, and they control their own borders. They're a separate country. They're separatists from Serbia, but they're effectively their own country. Although they are propped up by NATO, United States and whatnot. So if in the event that US and NATO weren't there, I have a feeling the Serbs would move in immediately. And they would be more than happy to wipe Kosovo off the map. And then they'd be right in that Kosovo isn't a country. <clears throat> but what we have here is Serbs uh, in Kosovo who blocked off two roads leading to the country's northern border. Uh, so, there's there's major unrest here. And this is over opposition. Really, really fierce opposition to the Kosovan government's plan to institute a new law. And this law would require the Serbs to apply for driver's licenses and other identification issued by the Kosovo government instead of the identifications they already had under the Serbian government because remember Kosovo used to be a part of Serbia so they're, they're up in arms against this and they really don't like it and in response to this effective this small scale uprising then the Kosovo government has closed the border crossings altogether and so this has sparked uh tensions if you want to say that i guess the the tensions were already there but now there's a tension being drawn to it 
again. We have NATO officials it, who who are NATO officials in the country who are calling this situation tense, which it is. You have uh, <laughs> the, the the I mean Russia has effectively already sided with the local Serb populations, with a spokeswoman for Russia's foreign ministry saying that they shouldn't have to deal with quote groundless discriminatory rules end quote. So the sides have already been made. The lines have already been drawn, at least enough to figure out which side is which, not enough to figure out whether or not there's going to be a war over this. But there looks to be conflict in, well, uh, in Serbia, if you're Serbian, but conflict between Serbia and Kosovo. But it's, I didn't expect to wake up reading this either. <laughs> but... This is what we have. So now we have the danger being presented to us of Serbia and Kosovo going back to war. And in the process, essentially becoming a proxy war for the larger proxy war in Ukraine being fought between Russia and the West. Because the Russians back Serbia and their foreign ministry is already backing the Serbs within Kosovo. Russia's already in a, a proxy war with NATO as a whole in Ukraine. And what appears to be, or at least what's looking like it's going to be, the decisive battle is about to begin in a matter of weeks in Ukraine with their Kherson offensive. So, the things are heating up. Things are heating up in Europe at the worst possible time for the Europeans, mind you. They're in no position to do anything about this. They're, it's literally just going to be the United States. If if it does come down to having to intervene here, it's literally just going to be the United States. That's what it's going to be. Because the rest of NATO may or may not have the gas to get there. And that's just a, a shame to even say. But things are heating up. And it's really looking like some of these older European conflicts are coming back into play. And it's been a while since I brought those up. I mean, it's been a while since we talked about tensions between Britain and France over fishing rights in the English Channel, where there were the French fishermen, if you remember, who blocked, blockaded uh, a British island, the Jersey Islands, which are just north excuse me, just northwest of France, and the UK had to send a destroyer to disperse them. You had tensions there, which haven't been around for quite some time, uh, at least not since the Napoleonic Wars. There haven't been tensions between the Britain and France in this area. It's been a while. You're seeing tensions between France and Germany over the direction of the EU. You're seeing tensions between Germany and Southern Europe, uh, which is a very peculiar uh, rivalry. You're, we're even now, now that I'm uh, on this subject, we're looking at tensions, uh, historic tensions between Poland and Russia. Because Poland is... The, we talked about Ukraine betting the family farm on this Kherson offensive. Well, the, the Polish are betting the family farm on Ukraine. They're getting heavily involved in the Ukrainian war effort uh, from military equipment to even 
rumors of them sending two battalions of their own army in the Ukraine to fight on behalf of the Ukrainians. So while the Polish got up to quite a slow start when this war began, they they have really stepped up to the plate. Yeah, they've really stepped up to the plate here, and it makes sense. This is their neighborhood. See, it makes sense for countries like Poland to be this heavily involved in Ukraine. It doesn't make sense for the United States to be here. It would make sense for Romania or Moldova, even Moldova, if they really wanted to be, to be involved in this war. It makes sense for Belarus to be involved in this war. Now, they're on the side of the Russians. It makes sense for them. It makes sense for Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia to be involved in this war. And to a more limited degree, it makes sense for Sweden and Finland to look at the war and reassess their geostrategic position. They're all right there. It does not make sense for the United States to be there. Now, if you're Britain and France, maybe it's worth the intervention. You know, I mean, there was the Crimean War. But beyond them, it doesn't make sense to be involved. You can't make the argument that the United States has to be involved without saying that countries like China would have to be involved or Iran would have to be involved. They're, they're Technically, they're closer. I mean, it makes sense that Turkey is as heavily involved as they are. They're right there as well, and they're reaping quite the benefits from this war, mind you. It seems like every country that's staying neutral is benefiting more than the countries involved, with the sole exception of Russia. All the neutral countries are making off like bandits from this. The, uh, the neutral countries that have, you know, energy production available to them, and their own food supply, mind you. Those are the necessary prerequisites unless they have access to Russian grain which isn't as inhibited as Ukrainian grain is but China stayed neutral they're reaping the rewards Turkey stayed neutral they're growing in importance by the second Iran stayed neutral now they're trying to apply for the BRICS and we'll talk about that in a little bit Arabia stayed neutral and now they're reaping the a super duper reward they're getting fat, dumb, and happy off these high gas prices. And so are the Venezuelans and the Iraqis and the United Arab Emirates. Every country that stayed neutral is reaping rewards. But all the countries that sanction Russia are getting smacked in the face economically. So that that's just one thing I've noticed. But we're watching, slowly but surely, that... All these historical rivalries pop back up and become relevant again, even if passively. It's, it hasn't exactly been directly observed by my contemporaries. The Polish-Russian rivalry, even though Poland is much smaller than Russia is now, they still have interests in keeping Russia at bay. It makes sense for them to be in here. Russia has interests in expanding. It makes sense for them to be doing what they're doing. And the Belarusians have already thrown in their lot with the Russians. So, of course, they're going to support the Russians in this endeavor. It makes sense in a strange way, even if it's a bit violent. And I'm more than anything shocked by the degree to which the Polish have really stepped up to fulfill their own interests. Because win or lose, and even though I believe Ukraine's going to lose in the end, Siding with the Ukrainians is in Poland's interest. Like, even though the the Ukrainians, the, the Nazis, the Nazis there do not view Poland as 
a, a legitimate race of people. They, they, they believe that Slavs are subhuman. The Polish are a Slavic people. They, they, they believe that they are subhuman. Both the Poles, the Belarusians, the Russians. Uh, that, that's what Nazi ideology will do to you. But hey, if the, if the Untermensch are going to give us free weapons to fight the war against the other Untermensch, then I guess we can make an exception for those good Untermensch for the time being. <laughs> uh, good old geopolitics. You never know who you'll... You never know who you're going to be uh, giving food to. And you'll, you'll know, you never know the hand that feeds until it feeds you. So it's a strange thing to watch, but it's very interesting. I'll just say that, very interesting. Poland's become much more interesting. Germany is spending more money on its military, so we, we might see some more animosities pop up out of that. But And we also see the Iberians, the Iberians separating themselves from the rest of Europe. We haven't, we haven't seen that since, what, 1500? <laughs> when they discovered the New World. So now they're looking like they're about to go their own way, at the very least, uh, with regards to energy. They flat out said, no, this is a bad idea. The plan for gas sharing, 15%. And since then, I've found that they only get 10% of their gas from Russia. So a 15% cut would mean sacrificing 5% more gas than they are no longer getting from Russia and giving it to countries that are more dependent on gas from Russia. So we can we can very obviously see why they're opposed to this policy. It'll be interesting to see what the Turks do with all this newfound power and influence. Will they make a bid for the islands between them and Greece? Will they make a bid for recognition of their territorial waters? Will that spark yet another conflict? I don't know, but we're seeing, we saw, at least a while ago, tension between Greece and Turkey, especially when Turkey made that bid for control over the eastern Mediterranean, which I don't think they've given up on. I don't think they've given up on. I think they're just waiting it out to become stronger so that they can. And if the current, if the trajectory of Europe is anything to, to go by, then the Turks might find themselves with the perfect opportunity to stake their claim. And if the French and the Greeks and the Germans and the British and basically all of Europe is in economic depression or is freezing in the winter, the last thing that's going to be on their mind is what the Turks are doing in the Eastern Med. So they might be playing a waiting game. And if they're smart, they'll take their opportunity. But it's very interesting seeing a lot of these old rivalries pop back up again. I wonder exactly how many of them will resurface. I wonder if you'll see uh, in certain states a Christian revival and they'll see the Turks as the enemy again. Who knows? Who knows? But we're, we're seeing history come back to life in Europe. And unfortunately for the Europeans, that means war and conflict. We'll just... See how long it takes for it to make its way to the western parts of the continent. Although I imagine that that's where it gets ugliest. But now we'll talk about the BRICS. Because the BRICS, and this is a acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. 
this alliance is expanding. Uh, Algeria, we I talked about it, I mentioned it earlier in the episode, they just applied last week. But even before that, you had Iran and Argentina applying for BRICS membership. Now, it still remains to be seen if they'll be accepted in. It'll be, it remains to be seen what, what they're going to do with the acronym. It, will they just leave it as is and say BRICS Plus, like you know how OPEC did? Even though OPEC was an acronym that wasn't made up of the names of the countries involved. But maybe they'll they'll take a page out of OPEC's uh, playbook and just go BRICS Plus so that you acknowledge the founding members and then acknowledge that there's additional members as well. Maybe they'll do that. But the BRICS is expanding now, and uh, sort of a, a rundown of what the BRICS is, it's an economic alliance centered primarily on trade and, you know, economic cooperation within the bloc uh, among its various members, and the group accounts for 41% of the global population when you put them all together. Now... Natu- uh, that's a figure that's obviously the result of having India and China counted at the same time on any one side. So that that's a pretty heavily weighted uh, calculation there. But it, that that's the population. So there's a really big market here for this economic development and the products of that development. But in nominal terms, they have a collective GDP of $23 trillion which is just beneath the U.S. economy in nominal terms. However, in purchasing power parity, when you calculate that for GDP instead of nominal GDP, they have a combined economy of 50 trillion, 50.1 trillion specifically, U.S. dollars, and collectively make up about 38% of the global economy. These are as of the 2021 numbers, the 2022 numbers aren't in yet because we're in 2022 but for reference in purchasing power parity terms the united states has an economy of 25.3 trillion and the chinese have 30.18 trillion so in ppp terms china already has a larger economy than the united states which is why every now and then i allude to them already being the largest economy because when you calculate it by this, they're above us by five trillion, but in nominal terms, they they're still at around fourteen trillion, where we're at twenty-five trillion. So depending on how you calculate GDP, that's a really really big difference. That's a really big difference. But we'll go with PPP, as I uh, no longer trust nominal GDP. Uh, so China has thirty trillion, and the other twenty trillion comes from the rest of them. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that the charts for PPP put Russia and Indonesia as the 6th and 7th largest economies, respectively, with the UK being 8th, where in nominal terms they're the 5th largest economy. So that, that's just a interesting tidbit there. But given the economic stats for this alliance and the real heavy hitters we're looking at here, uh, especially when you're going by PPP, it's understandable that countries like Argentina, Iran, and now Algeria would want to apply to join. It's not just a block of countries who happen to have large economies. No, this is a block for economic cooperation among some of the largest economies in the world. 
so it makes sense that these countries go on to apply because when you, you compare that to say the G7 or the G20 those are more like a club we're whole we're big economies we're going to meet every year and we're going to discuss a social economic state of the world <laughs> but we're not really going to do much we're going to discuss how we're going to work together to sanction a country we're going to work together to dis- and discuss how we're going to destroy another country's economy and interfere with another country's government. Those are the things that G7 and G20 countries like to do. But if you're not a major economy already, you don't really have much incentive to join in because that's those aren't in your interests. <laughs> Toppling other people's economies and their governments aren't in your interest. Even though these organizations have big heavy hitters economically speaking i mean they have the united states that that counts for something <laughs> we, we become number two and immediately relevant irrelevant but it's not those organizations don't have the heft it's just that they don't have the right direction the BRICS is aimed at economics economic growth economic development you know building uh, almost as if they were building with bricks, huh? <laughs> but that's what they're focused on. Whereas things like the G7 and the G20 are focused on destroying, more or less. So when you compare the two, and you look at, hmm, if I go with the G20, I, I can't even get into the G20. They-, they won't let me in. And even if I did, they're they're not promising cooperation they're promising how are we going to deal with another country who isn't a part of our club whereas if i go with the BRICS, they might let me in and if i get in now i can get easier trade access to these really really big economies and really fat quickly growing economies like china like india like i can i might gain access to russia's incredibly resilient economy they just got sanctioned by europe america britain and they're still kicking maybe i want access to them maybe i want access to their gas and i can get better rates if i'm a part of BRICS. maybe i can get better access to chinese manufactured goods if i'm a part of BRICS. maybe i can get ground floor access to india's market if i'm a part of BRICS. maybe i can gain access to some of south Africa and Russia's raw materials, uh, easier access if I'm a part of BRICS. There's, there's so much opportunity there. And it's not that the United States, it's not that the G7, the G20 couldn't do that. It's just a matter of direction it, and partially also a matter of economy. You look at the BRICS and their economies are based on physical production. That's their economies are geared towards the Russians, physical production raw materials the south africans physical production raw materials india physical production raw materials although more agrarian in nature china heavy 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 on the physical production not so much on the raw material but they can give you a whole lot of refined material like silicone like aluminum like steel like refined rare earth because rare earth has to be refined. They can do a lot of that. The The Russians do that to a limited degree, but they have lots of raw material. They have lots of lumber, lots of oil, natural gas, coal, uh, dime, 
well, the South Africans would have diamonds, but the Russians have lots of nickel and copper. And you have all these physical goods, raw materials, industrial inputs that you can use if you put them together good enough or smart enough, you can use those to bootstrap your economy into the 21st century. Just by the way these economies are geared. They're geared towards physical production, where you compare that to a lot of the G7 and G20 economies, which are geared towards... They're geared towards service. Well, I I don't really, I don't really need... A, my economy... If I want to grow my economy, I don't really need a service. That, that takes money away from the economy. I need production. I, I want things that I can use to produce. I, I can't take your service and produce a good that I can sell, not not a, a physical good, that I can guarantee that someone else needs uh, year-round. Yeah, I mean, you just look at Brazil. They're more agrarian in nature, but again, you have lots of raw materials, industrial inputs. If you play your cards right working with these countries, you might, you just might industrialize. Whereas with the, a lot of the G20 countries, and I, some of the, there's, there's a little bit of overlap here, so it's a little weird to say that, but a lot of these G20 companies and G7 countries, there's no incentive on economic growth. It's sort of just assumed that their economies will grow and that they don't need to work together for economic development. And while that might be the case, you know, I mean, it's, so far the, the economies are still growing. And while that might be the case, it's not exactly the most enticing thing when you compare that to BRICS, which is now on the rise. You know I mean? Now that there's some really heavy competition here, are you going to go with the service-based economies who gave up their manufacturing bases? Or are you going to go with the countries they surrendered their, their manufacturing bases to? Are you going to go with the countries that are starving for gas and energy? Or are you going to pair up with the country who has the gas and energy that they cut themselves off from? Who is now selling that gas and that energy at a discount? Are you going to go with the countries with a hollowed out manufacturing base? Or are you going to go with the workshop of the world, China? Are you going to, are you going to go with these countries who want you to change your government, change your way of life, change everything about your country to suit what they want, and you might get market access, or you're going to go with one of the largest developing markets out there, India, a, a country equal in population to China, on top of having access to China at the same time. It's... When you compare and contrast the benefits, the costs, the, when you compare and contrast the things you can get out of these economies and what, say, third world countries might want, or maybe not even necessarily third world countries, but less developed states, what they would want and need for their own economic development, it's just more beneficial to go with the BRICS. There's just more benefit to being with the bricks, more physical benefits, because the bricks are geared towards physical goods. You don't, you don't have to worry about famine. You, you team up with Russia and Brazil, oh, you, there you go. Russia, Brazil, and India, for that matter, they're all agrarian powers. You need cheap 
industrial inputs. Oh, you you got Russia, you got India, you got Brazil, you got South South Africa. Oh, you need lots of refined goods for higher tier industries. Maybe you're a more developed state, but not quite developed, like say Iran or Argentina. Oh, okay. Well, you can get refined materials in bulk from China for a really, really cheap. Oh, okay, that's great. I can get those. I get those. Oh, you need you need cheap industrial goods. You need you need this product tailor made to you and shipped out to you in a matter of months. Oh, the Chinese can do that. They they specialize in manufacturing. It's when you look at physical economies physical production-based economies, they just have more to offer to a developing country who needs those physical goods, who needs those physical inputs, those cheap industrial inputs, those cheap manufacturers, those refined materials produced en masse. And in a developing country, and especially one that is even making the attempt to industrialize, has more to gain from working with physical production-based economies than service-based economies. Because service-based economies drain money. Whereas the and you, you get a service, but how can you use that service for yourself? You can't really. If you buy a physical good from another country, well, now that thing is yours, and you can do whatever you want with it, and you can turn it into something, and now you can make money off of it. You can develop off of it instead of just giving your money away to another country and then they keep the money and you get a service that you can use for only one specific thing and you can't transform that service into something else. Developing economies have more to gain from physical production-based economies. So, uh, it's interesting to see now this wave of countries trying to join BRICS and it will also be interesting to see how countries like uh, those who are a part of the G7 and the G20 respond. Because the only way you can respond is with physical production, but then the the structural differences in your economies becomes a problem because you're not geared for that. So it'll be very interesting. It'll be very interesting to see how this goes. And it, it's also... Uh, it's also... Uh, pretty apparent now. Well, I was going to try to lean into a different topic, but that topic has escaped my mind. But now we can sort of observe how apparent this thing has become, this thing that I have written in my notes so I didn't forget. The The takeaway from the expansion or this uh, the, the attempted application for expansion on the part of countries outside of the bloc, the takeaway from the expansion of the BRICS, because... Uh, is that Russia has not been isolated. Sure, these countries might not be a part of the BRICS, but they're trying to join. But joining the BRICS means association with Russia, the country that's supposed to be the international pariah now. Countries are trying to join an alliance that Russia is a part of. Countries are trying to gain access to an alliance that Russia is in. And... Isn't it strange that countries are doing this now instead of at any moment earlier or at any moment later? Why are they doing this now when Russia is supposed to be 
the great enemy that we, the entire world is united against, which is what we're constantly told. We've rallied the world against Russia. But they're not. We haven't done that. The world isn't rallied against Russia. Russia has not been isolated. And I remember hearing a whole lot of talk. Like, I mean, every time I would look at the situation, I would hear talk surrounding how the West was going to sanction Russia into the dirt and isolate them economically and how we were going to cut them off from the world by removing them from the SWIFT international payment system. If, if you're old enough to remember that, all those five million years ago back in February. <laughs> uh, speaking of, now that I think about it, I haven't heard anyone even mention SWIFT these past few months. And, and that's even among people who believe that the sanction worked. No one even talks about it. Well, I guess the, the propaganda uh, is no longer needed, but what we can clearly observe now, if my previous episodes talking about Russia's economic situation didn't clarify already, what we can observe is that Russia is not only not isolated, but they're actually expanding their trade and expanding their international cooperation both actively and passively. Like, they didn't ask for Iran, Argentina, and Algeria to apply for BRICS membership. They did that on their own. And Russia is a part of the BRICS. So you have passive expansion of Russian trade and international cooperation. You have more uh, interaction between other countries in Russia looking at OPEC. They they brushed off Biden, and then they they go shake hands with Putin as though they were best friends, and then they discuss what they're going to set the price of oil at. I, Russia's not isolated. Russia has not been isolated. So do we say the sanctions failed? Well, there are a lot that believe that we just have to wait and see for the the sanctions to go forward, but Russia's not been isolated. And I was uh, just this week watching an, in an Intelligence Squared debate on whether or not we should isolate Russia. Now, there was the pro, there were two people arguing pro movement, the, the movement being, should we isolate Russia? Yes. And there were those who were, they had their two opponents who were arguing against the motion, saying, no, we shouldn't. And I'm just sitting here watching, because some of, I remember one of them, he was, he really made a good point in that it wouldn't be worth any of our time. It would hurt us too much. Uh, you can talk big about isolating Russia, but if that comes at too big of an expense to your own publics, well, you're just going to get voted out of office, and that policy is going to go with the people that get voted out. And that's a, that is very literally what we're observing now, and he didn't even know about what's going on in Italy right now. He was lo only looking at the U.K., he didn't even mention what's probably going to go down with the U.S. in the midterms. He, he did mention how... Actually, no, he didn't mention how Francis Macron doesn't have a majority in his parliament. His party doesn't have a majority in the parliament. But he was he only going off the U.K. and what happened with Boris Johnson. He says, there, there's your lesson right there. If it's too much for your public, you can't maintain this position. And while I agreed with that, you know... I, I felt that this was a, a secondary topic because we can't. Should we isolate Russia? We say yes. We say no. 
I'm just watching going, we can't. We literally already failed. We, we threw... Uh, w- what else am I supposed to say when you inundate me? Because I was quite inundated <laughs> back in February, March, and early April about the mother of all sanctions. The mother of all sanctions. You threw it at the Russians... And uh, their economy is still kicking. Their currency dropped and then bounced right back up and is now larger than it was before. Uh, well, stronger than it was before. You hit them with the mother of all sanctions and they snap back and say, gas for rubles, now pay up. And then their currency rebounds overnight. But you hit them with the mother of all sanctions. There's there's nothing left for you. There's nothing left for us to do. How do you isolate this country? If the mother of all sanctions wasn't going to cut it, how are you supposed to, to isolate this country? Turkey's not going to go along with that. They're reaping. They're making off like a bandit. Arabia's not going to isolate Russia. They're making off like a bandit. Iran's not going to isolate Russia. The Russians are their ally. And the Syrians aren't going to isolate them either. Because they're their ally. China isn't isolating Russia. They have a strategic partnership. Belarus isn't going to do it. Kazakhstan's not going to do it. As a matter of fact, none of Central Asia is going to do it. You can can write them off immediately. And the only country in the Caucasus you're going to get is probably Georgia. If they're not smart. But they've gotten smart. They're not going to go for it. Getting invaded once was all they needed. Will Japan go for it? Uh, Maybe. Maybe. India's not going to go for it, though. And really, that's all you need. That's all there is to say. None of the BRICS countries are going to isolate Russia. And the BRICS is expanding. So you can expand the list of countries who aren't going to sanction Russia. Who aren't going to isolate Russia. We have already failed. We've already failed. So I'm, uh, and I know this is just a, a big old side story here, but... Uh, that's a legitimate question being asked from people in places high enough to influence policy. Should we isolate Russia? And not a single one of them had come to the realization that we already failed to do that. and that, Or that we can't. We can't. So what it'll take for them to come to that realization, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. But it's just interesting watching other people who are supposed to be better at this than I am be so far behind us. Because you you here listening to me, you're better informed than a whole lot of other people. Because apparently, apparently I'm really good at what I do. (laughs) But it's insane. Like, not a single one of them even discussed the possibility, even the prospect that... It wasn't possible. No, every single one of them were on board with the idea that it was possible. Even the ones who said that we shouldn't do it. They thought it was possible. And I'm just like, wow. They've lost the plot. (laughs) They've lost the plot. (sighs) I imagine I'll see more stuff like that as the war continues. Right up until the Russians walk into not just Kiev, but Lviv. And then I will do infinite, 
victory laps. Infinite victory laps. You 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 guys probably aren't even gonna want to tune into this podcast. I'm just gonna be doing so many victory laps. It'll it'll be worse than when I predicted what was gonna happen with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Oh, it's gonna be so much worse than that. <laughs> I'll never let them hear the end of it. But alas, alas, folks. That's all I've got for you today. Yeah. <sighs> It's been a it's been a really crazy week. Uh, I wasn't expecting to be talking about UN peacekeeping forces killing people in Congo. I wasn't expecting to talk about the Balkans. I was intending on talking about the BRICS, so I'm happy I finally got around to that because I've been hearing news about them, and this country wants to join, that country wants to join, this country wants to join. I'm like, well, dang. <laughs> maybe I should do. Maybe I should dedicate a segment of the podcast to this. If it's if it's growing so damn fast, maybe I should bring it up. But, um, yeah. It's a crazy week. And I imagine next week has the potential to be just as crazy, although not as varied. I mean, it's not every day you get news coming out of Congo, but, uh, I guess, I guess news about Nancy Pelosi getting shot out the sky by the Chinese would more than compensate, but... Uh, I guess now I have to defend her since she's an American citizen and I, I can't condone a foreign government shooting an American citizen out the sky. But to be fair, we probably shouldn't be in bed with Taiwan anyway. That, that's where I stand. That's where you already know I stand. But alas, alas, we'll, we'll see how all this goes. We will see how all this goes. And we'll, if we'll find out by the time I record this tomorrow, oh, not tomorrow, by the time I record this next Monday, if we're at war. So... But that's all I got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Assuming we're not at war. Now I've been your host. Hi, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday. Servus.